multilateralism requires concerted efforts oriented to the results that can be beneficial for all, not for a one or two or group of states, but to everyone. This is the secret of the success of multilateralism. Hi everyone, I'm Natalie Alexander, and welcome to the Next Page podcast, designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Today, we continue our series of conversations with ambassadors to the United Nations in Geneva, where we explore with them their experiences as diplomats in a multilateral system and what the UN means for them today. Today, our director at the UN Library and Archives Geneva, Francesco Pisano, is joined by the permanent representative and ambassador of the Republic of Armenia to the UN in Geneva, Andranik Hovnasian. This year, 2022, Armenia marks 30 years of accession to the United Nations. Let's take a listen. Welcome everyone to this new episode of The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Geneva Library and Archives. We're continuing today our ambassador series that brings to you ambassadors and permanent representatives of member states of the UN talking about their countries, their nations, their aspirations and role in the UN. Today, I have the immense pleasure and honor to have with us Ambassador Andranik of Anisian, who is the permanent representative of Armenia to the United Nations in Geneva. He has become ambassador in 2019. He did his studies in Egypt, Armenia, and the U.S. He holds a Ph.D. in history, and this is one of the reasons why he likes hanging around in our library and archives. And his experience as a diplomat ranges from international security to being the advisor to Armenia's Minister of Foreign Affairs. So, Ambassador, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, and it's indeed a pleasure to be here, and allow me at the outset to start by thanking you for this kind invitation. You all mentioned that I have an uh, academic background, I'm a historian, and I'm specialized in the Middle East history. When I was doing studies in Cairo for Arabic language, I made also internship at the Embassy of Armenia, and there I fell in love with diplomacy. Uh, shortly soon, I joined our diplomatic service in Armenia, and my overseas postings included Damascus, Vienna, Washington, D.C., and now Geneva. Of course, I spend a lot of time also at the headquarters. But the history continues to be another passion of mine. This comes from my parents. Both of them were historians and very much engaged in academic life of uh, Armenia. I think that knowledge of history is a condition, indispensable for diplomats. Uh, because, you know, diplomats themselves are bureaucrats, but not in a boring manner. As bureaucrats, uh, we have to go also to see the previous practices, the historical facts, not to repeat the mistakes that were done previously, but also to learn on them, uh, build on the previous um, achievements to come to new goals. Thank you, Ambassador, for this introduction. Now, let's go a little bit to an overview of Armenia and its key historical moments. For those who don't know your country that well, how would you briefly present Armenia and what are the key moments of its history? 
I have researched myself and you would uh, test it. There is a lot of information about Armenian with uh, library too. However, it's very difficult to, you know, speak about the history of Armenia within the scope of a one program. It's a huge history, a long history, and uh, it is as old as the history itself. I mean, bearing in mind and suffice to recall that references to Armenia were made by the first written documents that are known to the mankind. Furthermore, Armenia is uh, mentioned in the Holy Bible. The Herodotus himself uh, made references to Armenia, and you know, Herodotus is considered credited to be the father of the history. So only to give you a glimpse, I mean, maybe a concise view about the Armenian history, recall all those empires with whom Armenia had close interactions, starting all the way back to the Assyrian, Babylonian, ancient Greek, Roman, Persian, Byzantine, uh, Arab, Mongol, Russian, you name it. There are so many of those. Some of them are no longer on the political map, but Armenians still are living there on the places that they have inhabited for centuries. When it comes to cultural exchanges, the geography is much larger, of course, and the traces of Armenians can be found all the way from Netherlands to China, from Venice to Madras to Bombay. Uh, these are, of course, the famous trade routes, and Armenian merchants played a significant role on those trade routes. And the remnants of the past can be also found now in uh, Armenian churches, founded and still present uh, in Amsterdam, in Singapore, and all the way in between. Uh, one does not need to go all the way to Armenia to get acquainted with Armenian uh, culture and history. It can be easily done as close as Venice, where Armenian congregation of Mahitaris was founded in 1717, and it still continues to be one of the important cultural and historic and scientific centers of Armenia. Another branch of this congregation is in Vienna, again harboring an impressive museum and library. From ancient times, Armenian quarter of the old city of Jerusalem harbors another significant cultural, uh, religious uh, place of Armenia. Uh, there are many other places around the world like that. However, if one wants to get thoroughly know our culture and people, of course, one should go to Armenia. The capital itself is 2,800 years old. The inscription about the birth certificate is now kept in the Museum of History of Armenia. Not far from Yerevan, we have another important place for our nation. It's Holy Eshmiadzin, where the Armenian Catholicos, the supreme leader of Armenian Apostolic Church, is residing. The cathedral there is dates to the 4th century. However, there are also not just Christian monuments and sites in Armenia, but also pre-Christian, not far again from Yerevan, one can find a magnificent Greco-Roman Hellenistic-style temple built by Armenian king Tiridates in the 1st century. And just very recently, a most eastward Roman aqueduct was excavated in Armenia in the ruins of the capital city Artaxata. The Artaxata itself was believed, and uh, ancient historians were writing about it, that it was founded by Hannibal, the powerful king of Cartagena, who was the close ally of uh, Armenian king. Now, if you ask me about the key moments in the history, I guess it's very difficult to mention uh, only a few of them and skipping the others. But in a very natural and in a very brief and selective manner, maybe I can uh, outline several of them. It's 301, uh, the year when Armenia adopted Christianity as a first nation in the world to do so. 405, it's the creation of Armenian alphabet. 1375, the loss of our independent statehood. Since we talk in the walls of a library, I cannot skip the year 1512, when the first book was printed in Armenian. 
The next data in our history is written in a black numbers. It is the 1915, the beginning of Armenian genocide. Uh, but the next two dates are also very important. It's the 1918, the creation of our independence, and 1991, the establishment of the current Republic of Armenia. I could have added to this list a long number of battles and wars that Armenian nation waged throughout the history to defend uh, its culture, its identity, but I will stop here. And indeed, uh, Armenia has uh, such a long and fascinating history. If we zoom in into the region that Armenia is in, let's say geographically speaking, the South Caucasus, it's a region with a very dynamic history, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. For the benefit of our audience, because your country sits at the crossroads between Eastern Europe and Western Asia, geographically speaking, I wonder what is today's regional role of Armenia in that region that has such a dynamic history? And also, if you may add, what are the main hopes and challenges of Armenia as a nation in today's world, more globally speaking? Well, the aspirations are probably the same as with many other nations. Here we are not new, unique. What we want is peace, stability, the possibility of living in an atmosphere free of wars, dividing lines and conflicts. However, I believe what makes us probably distinctive is that more than many other nations, Armenians know the true value of peace. This is due to our historical experience, since we didn't have that many periods in our uh, history marked by peace and uh, stability, and have always been obliged to struggle for our rights. Being situated at the crossroads, as you mentioned, of course, largely defined our history. Some scholars would call it a curse of a history, or as Robert Kaplan called it, a revenge of a history. But it is interesting that also Sir Winston Churchill referred to the Armenian history in these terms, also calling in his words that the misfortune of Armenians is very much defined by this geographic location, because it was on the crossroads of different empires and invaders throughout the, almost all of it. Uh, history. It is also interesting that Sir Winston Churchill referred to the Armenian massacres calling them by the word Holocaust. At that time, the word genocide was not invented yet. When in 1940s, uh, Raphael Lemkin coined the word, he specifically referred to the Armenian genocide. Indeed, the rise and fall of empires are uh, painful experience, of course, especially so for the small nations who sometimes find themselves buried under the ruins of big empires. In our case, we have witnessed the fall and collapse of more than one empire, more than once in one century alone. So that very much defined, of course, our history. Not having an independent statehood, Armenia had significantly contributed to the victory of allies both during the First and the Second World Wars. I guess that this was also the reason uh, why Armenia was invited among the victorious states to participate in the 1919 Paris Peace Conference. And the head of the Armenian delegation made an application to the League of Nations at that time, asking for Armenia's admission. And this document is carefully kept in your archives. And I was happy and really touched to see it during my first visit to the library. The short-lived uh, independent public of Armenia of 1918-1920 
was the history of that republic was marred by the wars and conflicts. Uh, one of them was on defending Nagorno-Karabakh uh, from Azerbaijan. At that time, Nagorno-Karabakh had 93% Armenian population and has never been part of independent Azerbaijan. During the Soviet times, and first Nagorno-Karabakh was recognized as part of Soviet Armenia, but then due to an overnight change, it was incorporated into Azerbaijan. Even though the borders of the Soviet Union were largely administrative, but the people of Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia never agreed to that uh, decision because that was taken illegally and against the will of uh, population of Nagorno-Karabakh. So the catastrophically false nature of this decision came to surface once again at the eve of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, when the people of Nagorno-Karabakh started a peaceful movement for self-determination, which was uh, reacted by use of force and uh, massacres. As the last year war in Nagorno-Karabakh vividly demonstrated again, the conflict continues to ruin the peaceful life, and it is far from being settled. But since I uh, touched upon the First World War, let me also very briefly uh, touch upon also the Second World War and its impact on Armenia, because that is well known, these two wars had a significant impact on the development of multilateralism and international organizations. So again, not having an independent statehood, and even the Second World War has not reached uh, geographically Armenia, but Armenians immensely contributed to the victory against Nazism uh, on all fronts. But mainly, of course, in the Soviet army, 600,000 Armenians went to war, half of them lost their lives. That was at the time about 20% of the population of Armenia, huge number. So Armenians were decorated as heroes, uh, 107 of them were decorated as heroes of the Soviet uh, Union, one of the um, highest scores within the nationalities of the Soviet Union. We had 60 generals, four of them were later promoted to marshals. This is the highest rank in the Soviet military. Uh, of course, we have contributed also to the resistance movements. Here, the resistance in France and the name of Misak Manushan is uh, very well known. As in many parts of the globe, Armenia too welcomed the fall of the Berlin Wall and it was met with great enthusiasm and hopes in Armenia. At one point already a strong democratic movement was in full swing in Armenia. This is however not to say that we uh, do not acknowledge the huge contribution of the Soviet Union uh, to the development of Armenia, to the development of its art, culture, science, uh, many other aspects. Let me bring only one example. During the Soviet years, the uh, observatory was founded in Armenia, an astrophysical observatory, which at the time was a well-known, world-rewarded observatory under the leadership of a prominent astrophysicist, Viktor Hambartsumyan. And these were really world-known institution and uh, scientists working there. For the small Armenia, was was a huge achievement and it was due to the of course Soviet contribution, Soviet influence, which was very vivid in many aspects of our daily life. Also an important factor, it became possible due to this relatively short period of peace, uh, which we were talking about, which Armenia lacked throughout its uh, history. The peace was uh, created after the Second World War. But the general optimism of the fall of Berlin Wall soon faded. You know that Armenia during the Cold War was situated on the frontier of Cold War per se, but the frontier itself has never been opened. It's remained closed, uh, somehow also symbolizing that even though the Cold War is finished, but the problems have not been settled. 
not all of them at least. Now, with all those remaining problems still on the plate, we have started to feel the cold breeze of a new geopolitical rivalry, and again, Armenia is on the front here. Well, even this broad description of our recent history may be enough to explain why Armenia cherishes peace so much, advocates for it, and tries to contribute. The wars, conflicts, even the ones which have nothing to do directly with Armenia, had a very tragic impact on my nation. Hence, we try to make our contribution to a world free of wars and dividing lines. On a national level, for example, recently, the creation of a peaceful atmosphere of the region was inscribed in the government program. Indeed, it was recently adopted by the parliament. So it's not just on the boards. It also has a legal meaning when it comes to Armenia. This brings us to more modern times and the entrance of Armenia into the United Nations. And this happens after the re-independence, if I could say that, that war in March 92. And um, you're a member state in many regional and international organizations. So to talk a little bit about Armenia in the context of the UN, uh, which is very dear to our podcast series because we wanted to have this podcast basically on multilateralism, the history of multilateralism, the practice of multilateralism. So this is the classical question we put to all ambassadors. What is the assessment that you make today of your country's experience in the UN? Indeed, year 2022, we mark the 30th anniversary of Armenia's accession to the United Nations. To become a full-fledged member of a global organization, to have an equal seat among the family of nations, I guess these are unique feelings for any country, any state, any nation, but more so for Armenians. As I mentioned, for a hundred years, we were deprived of our independent statehood, and being a member of a United Nations meant uh, and continues to mean a lot for, for us. It is not a coincidence that March 2 is also assigned as a Day of Diplomats in Armenia. This is uh, another token of specialty that we are attaching to this day. Uh, as you know, the international organizations are mainly member state driven enterprises. And if you are not represented by an equal seat, there is little that you can do. Again, today I think that we will from time to time go to our historical experience since I am myself a historian and I cannot get rid of these, you know, historical examples and experiences that my nation had. But maybe this would also be interesting for the listeners also to, from uh, one nation's historical experience to view, to multilateralism and the role of international organizations from this perspective, as you kindly mentioned in your introductory remarks. So Armenia knows this well, that uh, if you are not equally represented, all kind of difficulties and troubles may come on your nation. Sometimes our fate was decided without even presence of any Armenian at the table of uh, negotiations. Hence, first of all, what we value in the United Nations is that it provides a recognition of sovereign equality of states. Armenia uh, has come a long way to that. It is also a platform where states can cooperate on wide array of issues based on sovereign equality. Again, we do not have that many international platforms as Armenia where we can express ourselves and make our uh, points known to hear to others, to raise awareness and seek international assistance. In this case, the United Nations is, of course, unique as a global organization which provides to even such small states as Armenia of this 
opportunity. Meanwhile, we also learn, benefit, and contribute. Hence, the advantages are, are vivid, especially for relatively new independent states. As you mentioned, Armenia's independence came just before the, our accession to the United Nations. And here, what we benefit from the United Nations is the technical assistance and capacity building, which are very important and we very much appreciate throughout all these years. And today, too, as we speak, this capacity building and technical assistance to Armenia continues to add to uh, all walks of life in Armenia, almost all of them. We are cognizant that not everything is working perfectly in the United Nations, and we are aware of claims that some states seem to be more equal here than the others. We, of course, know all other types of criticism that UN usually faces. It is not perfect, but we all need it. And I think even those who criticize it understand that it is indispensable. Over 30 years' experience in the UN tells us that the success of the United Nations is very much based on our collective action. Multilateralism requires concerted efforts oriented to the results that can be beneficial for all. Not for a one or two or group of states, but to everyone. This is the secret of the success of multilateralism, uh, if we put it in the general terms. We should all triumphantly pursue this goal, aiming for successful outcomes. On the national level too, the cooperation within the United Nations framework should be directed to this goal. If we speak about uh, Armenia's contribution to this joint endeavor, one of the first things that comes to my mind is uh, peacekeeping operations. As we speak now, Armenia is contributing to the peacekeeping operations of the UN in Mali and Lebanon. But previously and in different frameworks, we have contributed also to such missions as in Syria and Iraq, Afghanistan, Kosovo. It's interesting that once UN Assistant Secretary General for Peacekeeping Operations stated in this regard that Armenia's support is important not only for its contribution, but also for the Armenian history and the challenges that it has overcome. We see our current membership to the Human Rights Council as another opportunity to contribute to the global action. The activities of Armenia in HRC are directed by our willingness to contribute to the whole agenda of HRC, of its promotion of human rights and protection of human rights. In some cases, it may be based on our national experience, but we think it's not a bad thing to do, to share your national experience with other nations and to try to raise awareness on some issues which are also national. But we are not using that for our national narrow political purposes. We are doing that for awareness raising, we are doing that for sharing this experience and building some responses to some kind of, you know, challenges that are very unique for this or that nation. And I think that this is also very much understandable. But overall, our actions in the Human Rights Council are based on the values, on the commitments. As I said, we are trying to push them forward, we are trying to enrich them, and we are trying to contribute whenever we can to their development. Armenia is a penholder of a genocide prevention resolution of HRC, and we think that this is also another token of our contribution to our joint efforts. We are active in many other issues which are on the agenda of HRC, but let me only mention one of them. The right of women are standing very high on our agenda. Armenia chaired the UN Commission on the Status of Women for the period of 2020-2021. Here, these are just few examples of Armenia's activities within the UN, which we intend to preserve, enhance, and deepen.
And thank you for underlining also this link between small states acting in equal terms inside the UN, because something that comes up constantly is this importance to give a voice to to everyone, every nation, every member state. And this is really something that at the roots of the dialogue, which is one of the values of multilateralism itself, the value of being able to hold meaningful dialogue, no matter how interests are different or conflicting, but the capacities dialogue is something that is stands at the really at the roots of the values of, of the United Nations. One of the things that describes Armenia is the millions of Armenians who live elsewhere. There are impressive communities of Armenians in many countries around the world. And very often these communities make important contributions to science, culture, the arts. Uh, you know, many, a score of names come to my mind when you talk about art, music, science, engineering. And everybody knows that. Everybody knows at least one Armenian researcher or historian or musician that made history. And so I wanted to ask you, how does this global presence affect, or maybe it doesn't, Armenians' attitude towards multilateralism itself, this sort of seeing things as global things? Okay, let me put a small footnote here for all those who are not aware. Uh, my nation is in a very unique situation. We have 3 million Armenians living in Republic of Armenia per se, another 6 to 7 million abroad scattered um, around the world there were different uh, you know reasons for that uh, historical reasons we have traditional old armenian communities as i mentioned in jerusalem and many other parts of the world we have armenian communities which were created after the armenian genocide and we have armenian communities created very recently after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Overnight, the part of a big state, the big empire, which was considered to be a one state, became different states, and we uh, found out that we have Armenian uh, communities uh, all over the Soviet Union, which, which was previously Soviet Union. So uh, this is a unique experience, of course, and I would like to thank you very much for your kind words about the Armenian nation. It's always very nice to hear such kind of uh, compliments. And indeed, if we start now to enumerate all the Armenians uh, around the world who are famous in art, science, etc., that would take a lot of hours. Let me give only two examples which maybe are very relevant to our conversation today. The first name, of course, that you mentioned is uh, on everybody's mind. It's Charles Aznavour, uh, great chansonnier, who was probably best known Armenian in this part of the world, who also was at some point also our ambassador to Switzerland and to the uh, United Nations. And another name uh, which comes to my mind is uh, Mr. Nubar Afean. He is the CEO of uh, pharmaceutical company Moderna. And you know, Moderna is one of the companies which has created the vaccine against COVID and it's very relevant. Whenever I talk about uh, this kind of personalities, the words of the first High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, Fritjof Nansen, comes to my mind, who said that the migrants who are considered to be a burden today may become an asset for their countries who have uh, sheltered them tomorrow. And these are very exactly precise uh, and to the point examples. And there are many others. Uh, certainly, this wide Armenian presence around the world is also an asset for Armenia. In that sense, it helps a lot our works as diplomats, since very often we do not need to introduce ourselves to our countries where we are serving. 
Another aspect is very often ambassadors, my uh, counterparts, come to me and they are telling me about their stories, their relations with the Armenian nation in their countries. An Armenian street, an Armenian quarter, an Armenian enterprise, an Armenian friend, neighbor, maybe classmate. These are very common, these stories. In diplomacy, I can testify myself how being an Armenian helps in interstate relations with those countries that have significant and always very well integrated and immersed Armenian presence which as a rule had created a favorable name for Armenians as hardworking, diligent, law-obedient citizens. This happened even before the independence of Armenia, and this is a gift indeed for diplomats who usually work to strengthen the people-to-people contacts. But uh, when our first Armenian ambassadors were assigned abroad, they found out that we already have a good name here, and we already have very good uh, people-to-people contacts in many countries. When it comes to its role on multilateralism, we have this internal debate in Armenia, in among diplomats, among academics, if these circumstances that I have just described make our nation a global one. One way or another, diaspora makes us global and exposes in a positive way to the world. Hence, one can claim that multilateralism is in our DNA. And that's a nice way to, to say it. Uh, but before we draw to a conclusion... Ambassador, you are a historian, you're passionate about the history of the world, but passionate about the history of Armenia, and now you're the permanent representative of of your nation to the UN. From that vantage point of being the permanent representative of Armenia to the UN, what is your view as a person about multilateralism and collective security? When we talk about the established multilateralism, right, about the international organizations, then this is a creation of the most recent past. Historically, it's a, not a long perspective, and of course, it continues to largely be in the period of formation, adaptation, sometimes also mutation. You know the famous saying then to the question, what is the impact of the French Revolution? The answer is, it is too early to say. I mean, this is very true about multilateralism and the work of international organizations. But uh, to evaluate them, to see how they are working, one should also know the history that it passed, of course. But to be more precise, the huge leap that humanity has passed to what we have today in terms of international organizations and established international you know, structures and international law. You made a reference to that, that it was largely a product of uh, rapid development and technological advancement over past centuries, which brought to the necessity. I mean, it was a, also a demand-driven process to create organizations for cooperation, for standardization, especially in technical ones. The first ones were, as you know, founded also here in Switzerland, and some of them are still uh, with us today. It's ITU, UPU, and others. It is interesting to note that one of the first challenges that the League of Nations faced was about the stateless people and refugees after the First World War. And again, coming back to the first High Commissioner on Refugees, uh, Fritjof Nassen, he uh, came up with the idea of giving uh, identity certificates to those people called uh, so-called Nassen passports. My own grandparents used those passports, and this was one of the first successful cases of international action that granted refugees both mobility and security and saved uh, a lot of lives. However, one of the main objectives underlying purpose of multilateralism, of course, it was uh, averting the 
wars and creating uh, conditions where countries can cooperate to prevent the large hostilities. Uh, you know what the first uh, such uh, attempt was the concert of Europe after the Napoleonic Wars. But uh, this idea, of course, occupied the minds of most brilliant thinkers for many centuries. What reminded me about one of the um, brilliant philosophers of Enlightenment era, Immanuel Kant, who believed that the representative governments with a proper separation of power would cooperate with one another and will not wage wars against one another because simply such kind of governments will rely on their own citizens, not on mercenaries. He very much believed in this demand-driven kind of cooperation. Uh, I think many of us uh, may share this uh, optimism. However, at some point, countries came to an understanding that we need some structure, some organizations where we can permanently sit and uh, discuss the issues. Uh, the first attempt was uh, not successful, the League of Nations. But that brought to the creation of a second one, the UN. I'm sure you know that a lot of servants, hundreds of servants from League of Nations, they migrated to the United Nations also symbolically show the connection between these two great enterprises. And the United Nations, of course, is here today and endured another war, a Cold War. It uh, reacted to several drastic crises and aftershocks, but it endured. Naturally, such kind of huge endeavor cannot be flawless. Our task is to work to strengthen what we already have and to try to make it even more functional. But by doing so, we have also to recognize that the United Nations is not homogeneous. There are different kind of countries here which may have different historical and cultural backgrounds, political, economic and social systems, be at different levels of uh, development. Uh, in this context, probably we have to concentrate on uh, what makes us uh, strong, what unites us. First of all, of course, it's the central role of the United Nations as a global organization for multilateral affairs. Uh, overseeing the full adherence to the purpose and principles of the UN Charter. Uh, time and again, we have been reminded that in the face of global challenges, we are all together, both in uh, reaction and uh, impact. As uh, Secretary General put it, we are all in together in reacting to the challenges brought by COVID-19 pandemic. But this is probably the most recent example. Uh, let me give another one on migrants and refugees. No any single country can take the burden upon itself. It should be shared because there are no any country that can alone deal with such kind of magnitude. Second, it is our commitment to all three pillars of the United Nations namely peace and security, human rights and development. In our view, there should not be any kind of hierarchy among them. You know, when a tricycle runs effectively, if all its wheels are of the same size, if there is an imbalance that will bring to all kinds of difficulties and will make the whole enterprise ineffective, unstable, and at best decorative, but still symbolic. Last but not least, we have to learn on our mistakes. Of course, the League of Nations is uh, providing a lot of such lessons to us. One of them on which I would like to concentrate is the credibility. The international organization should keep, should preserve its credibility. Look, when France and Great Britain went to war against Nazis, they didn't evoke any mechanism of a League of Nations. 
even though those two countries were staunch supporters of the League of Nations. But why we didn't do that? Because at that time, the League has lost all of its credibility. United Nations, our international organizations should keep this credibility, should do everything to keep this credibility. And of course, the member states have to contribute to that. In this sense, I think that the countries should react to all kind of challenges to security, no matter how big or small they are, because this is also a matter of perception. A one shot from river in, you know, Sarajevo sparked the whole world war and uh, countries saw how much humanity can degrade in the absence of structured mechanisms for reacting to this one shot, but also to the killing of millions of people later. There were no such mechanisms created. Even during the Second World War, the world leaders were discussing the possibility of creating a stronger League of Nations. That means that even though they didn't use the League of Nations, but they had in mind that they need something like that, a bigger and stronger organization, and this idea didn't go anywhere. So the credibility is the key, and we have to discuss, we have to talk about any challenges that we are facing. You know, to use the words of Jean-Paul Sartre, every word has consequences, every silence too. Make no mistake, even those instances that may seem to have relatively narrow scope may later stand as a precedent or a trigger for a greater calamity. In this sense, also, we have to learn from the most recent history of the Second World War. Appeasement of serial abuser is not the best way of containment. We have to call spade a spade and avoid introducing artificial equilibrium among the perpetrator and the victim. It does not help. It does not help to cease the hostilities, does not help to bring the culprits to justice. Usually what impunity does, it encourages the perpetrators to commit the same crimes anew. We should avoid the situations where uh, some uh, leaders may openly tell that the international order is not working, international law is just a piece of paper, and that the might is right. Uh, such scenarios should be avoided. And if there are such scenarios, they should serve us as an early warning signal that something is wrong there. And this example that I'm bringing is not a, a theoretical exercise. This is what happened recently in our region. In these uh, terms, I think that international organizations and their structures should act decisively whenever we see uh, any threat to our common commitments to our values. Let me bring one example on UNESCO, but it can be brought to any other organization or uh, UN structure. Whenever there is a real threat to the cultural or religious heritage, uh, UNESCO should engage and rapidly act in order to preserve that heritage and prevent its destruction. This is also very much security-related issue. By the way, we should not be the concern of only those who are directly engaged, but we should be a concern for everyone, since it is not about the parties that are directly engaged, but this is the issue about the uh, testing the abilities of a given structure, the resilience of our common commitments, and our resolve for their implementation. As I said, the same is true for our structures or organizations. Thank you for that. I can see the historian in you is there uh, with the examples, etc. But it's important to note um, this view that you have about collective security linked to the credibility of the convener of the international dialogue, which is the United Nations today. And thank you also for the various linkages that you made between the League of Nations and the United Nations. I think our listeners are always trying to learn how these two organizations were connected and not separated, how the League of Nations was 
partly successful and partly unsuccessful, but not totally one or the other. And I think you brought up uh, very concrete examples with dates that go to demonstrate that. Ambassador, as we wrap up our episode today and to conclude, do you have any particular message that you want to deliver to our listeners before we close? I think I already tried to put my message in my answers, especially to your last question. Maybe I should add a couple of words about the current uh, technological development, which is unprecedented. I mean, in no any historical period we have experienced as a humanity such kind of a rapid growth of technology. No other in any period of history we have experienced anything like this in terms of globalization and connectivity and uh, intertwined interests, politics of different countries. So that brings me to an idea that, you know, the whole multilateralism, as we discussed today, was born out of technological advancement. Maybe they are now on the verge of another invention in terms of strengthening the multilateralism. This is what I really very much hope. I really very much hope that this will bring to new ideas, uh, new organizations. I think it should because the demand is there. Um, not only just for regulating this uh, rapid uh, technological advancement, which is very difficult task, but also for trying to put them in service of all humanity. Uh, be it as it may, and, but even now we can testify that the technologies have enormously helped the multilateralism. If we bring only the example of a COVID-19, 10 years ago we could not imagine continuing our multilateral work, our cooperation in such kind of circumstances. But now we have all these kind of gadgets and you know technological services that uh, allow us to continue our business. Maybe not as usual, but still continue to serve uh, to the humanity. And my greatest hope is that uh, technological advancement would bring to another wave of uh, strengthening of our common international cooperation in the spirit of solidarity and in conformity to the UN Charter. But thank you very much again for this uh, great initiative. I uh, consider this uh, building, this library as a sacred place. It's a kind of a temple for me, this one in particular. It's a sacred temple, if you wish, and if so, then you are its chief priest. Thank you very much. Ambassador Anisian, permanent representative of Armenia to the United Nations in Geneva, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Mm-hmm.